Neoliberalism is a word that is hot on the tongue and the fingertips of many writers and speakers and commentators, not only on the left or the progressive corners of the U.S. political system, but across the spectrum. And yet, as we will be discussing in today's episode, very few people own that title. Very few people walk around proudly with their head held high saying, I am a neoliberal. So what is a neoliberal, and does it have any meaning in our political context? Let's talk about it. My guest today argues that there is a liberal parlor game, wherein the rules are to pretend that there's no such thing as neoliberalism. This game's very popularity, he argues, highlights neoliberalism's enduring hegemony. To talk more about neoliberalism and the dead pundits who qualify under that concept as that term is Luke Savage. Luke is a contributing writer at Current Affairs. He's a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. He writes a lot of stuff, folks. Uh, He also speaks words in a podcast. He's a co-host of Michael and Us, Luke Savage. Thanks for coming on Dead Pundit Society. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So the liberal pundits, members of the Dead Pundit Society, the folks for whom this podcast and YouTube channel uh, is na- are named, the, the 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 dead pundits of the world, the uh, they don't know that they're dead, uh, much like Bruce Willis in uh, the Sixth Sense. Uh, I see dead pundits. Uh, <laughs> they're walking around feeding on the brains of the living, living like zombies. I'm talking about the likes of Jonathan Chait, who is. Certainly not a protagonist in your latest Jack piece for Jacobin Magazine. That piece is titled Neoliberalism? Never heard of it. So who is a neoliberal these days and what sense does that make? It's a big question, but what provoked you to write this article? Let's start there. This article had a, had a pretty silly inception. I mean, I, I really was just setting out to investigate sort of annoying tick that some uh, liberals and some pundits have uh, on, on Twitter, I'm embarrassed to say this, the idea for this was born on, uh, on Twitter as very few good ideas are, and people will have seen this, this take in, you know, different forms, right? Um, you know, what is neoliberalism? Name three examples without using Google. I'll wait, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I really wanted to just, uh, investigate that. And I was expecting to write something along the lines of, you know, neoliberalism is a is a is a intensely written about phenomenon. There's no reason to pretend it doesn't exist. But then when I actually read, you know, kind of the the as it were, the house literature on this, I found something rather more interesting was going on and that there are actually different variations of this take and uh, that some of them are pretty revealing. So the piece became a little more interesting for that reason. As you write in your piece, the people who are the most offensive about this moniker, this epithet, uh, are perhaps the most uh, obviously neoliberal of the bunch. Let's start with Jonathan Chait. In a recent piece, he argued that liberalism is working and Marxism has always failed. 
So the epithet is thrown at these mainstream centrist liberals who seem hell-bent on defending the status quo against all odds and evidence and arguing instead that people to their left, the people who have the energy, the excitement, and the answers to the most <laughs> existential challenges that face us today, i.e. Marxists, uh, are, 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 are touting around a failed ideology and have no real actionable strategies in the world. So it's really – it's a turf war on – the uh, from the center to the left end of the political spectrum, so to speak, in that sense. What does the likes of Jonathan Chait, uh, what kind of role do those types of people play? First of all, for the lay audience, who is Jonathan Chait and uh, what does he represent in the political discourse uh, these days? Jonathan Chait is a, uh, I guess, staff writer at uh, New York Magazine. And I think Certainly when I read him, he, you know, he writes a lot of stuff that I think you could safely call uh, left punching. He's somebody who, for reasons that I don't fully understand, um, although I have some kind of, uh, I don't know, armchair psychoanalysis I might do of them, uh, perhaps not on mic. Um, uh, you know, he's somebody that that spends a lot of time grappling with um the existence of people to his left and seems uh, intensely kind of troubled uh, by that. He wrote this piece uh, about uh, how neoliberalism is kind of this horrific insult, this epithet um, hurled at uh, people like him, hurled at, uh, hurled by everyone on the left at, at just everything uh, they dislike. And, um, you know, I, I knew that he'd written that, but uh, I hadn't actually read it carefully enough when it when it first came out to uh, see the the contours of his argument in more detail. And the argument that he's making to substantiate this is pretty incredible. He he basically says that liberalism has not changed. The Democratic Party, its its ideological orientation, its economic policies in particular haven't changed since the New Deal. This is something that he more or less explicitly, or I should say explicitly, claims in uh, in this essay. Um, and, you know, he obviously has to grapple with the fact that, that American uh, politics and culture and society have moved significantly to the right in the last 30 years. And the way he does that is by saying that, uh, you know, Democrats were forced into um, a kind of increasingly defensive posture, um, and, you know, Barack Obama wanted to do more sweeping reforms, but he, he couldn't uh, win support for, for them from what he calls a radicalized opposition. So this is an absolutely incredible and I think deeply ahistorical um, and obviously incorrect account of, you know, liberalism over the past 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years. Uh, as I think Corey Robin pointed out in a, in a Jacobin essay a few years ago, someone like Jonathan Chait, who is a distinctly neoliberal thinker, would be absolutely appalled by the economic policies advocated by even the sort of median democratic uh, politician in 1970. So uh, if you go back and you look at, say, Hubert Humphrey's uh, platforms, you know, who, Hubert Humphrey would be a raging communist to Jonathan Chait. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so, no so there's clearly been a, there's clearly been a shift in, in American liberalism and Chait's not recognizing it. But what I found, I think even more interesting about this argument, uh, is that, uh, he, Chait, uh, almost implies that the, uh, shift to the right that's, uh, occurred in, in American politics over the past few decades is something that just kind of happened um, you know, uh, he refers to a radicalized opposition, meaning the Republican Party. But the implication here is that 
liberals and Democrats had no agency. They had no role in bringing about this this shift, because as he tells us, they haven't changed at all. Um, and again, I just don't think that is supported by uh, by the history, which uh, perhaps we can get into a little bit more uh, in a in a moment. Yeah, unfortunately, we're not going to have the time or the space in this particular video to break down the last 30 or 40 years of the history and trajectory of American liberalism, uh, not even close to it. We'll go in much more depth in the podcast version of this. Everybody check out the show notes below in the uh, video description uh, for the link to that podcast and directions on how to access it. So we'll go much more in depth there. So let me just cut to the chase here. What is the use of this word? I mean, it's, it's a word that's the, nobody owns it. It's not an identity in that sense. It's not something that is um, self-ascribed. Uh, so it, it's an it's an instrument, really. And I think that's the value of this word neoliberal. Now, on the one hand, I've talked extensively on Dead Punnett Society in the past as to how this is a very lazy word. It's a word that we ascribe to people uh, in order to avoid really assessing what we mean when we say it. But on the other hand, as a sort of blunt political instrument, I think it's been very, very successful in making some really crucial and key distinctions on the liberal to progressive to democratic socialist left. So what is the use of this word? How has it been used? And by your estimation, why is it worth retaining? It's worth retaining because neoliberalism was at one point a very conscious political project and a very conscious philosophy. Um, it had uh, a certain degree of ideological dynamism. It even had, you know, sort of intellectual partisans and activists um, in the in the seventies and in in the early eighties, and um, so if the term has a use, I think one of I mean one of those uses is is historical. It's to refer to those people. But I think that uh, and who were those people? Not to interrupt you, sorry about that. But who were, mm -hmm. we? It occurs to me we're ten minutes in and we haven't actually defined neoliberalism or a, or a neoliberal. What are some mm -hmm. of the broad sort of political prescriptions and principles that the neoliberals? Uh, we're pushing, jamming down our throats, sometimes violently so, as in the, the, the bloody coup in Chile in 1973, orchestrated by Pinochet. Uh, what are some of their principles that they espouse? Uh, I mean, I think the best place people can read about this is in, uh, is in David Harvey's brief history of neoliberalism. It's a really good and succinct summary. But, but, but quickly, you know, neoliberalism uh, was and is, a, you know, a blend of, of neoclassical economics and classical liberal uh, philosophy, you know, the way neoliberals think about their own philosophy, I think, is rather different from how it works in practice. I think in practice, it is a con uh, actually a fairly conscious project to establish um, or to reinforce uh, a particular kind of uh, class power and class rule from uh, property owners. Um, to make life as easy for those people as possible. I, I guess stated a little bit differently, neoliberalism was a critique of the kind of welfareist and social democratic current that uh, was popping up before the war um, and, and uh, you know, was, was realized to some degree after the war um, in America. That was with, uh, you know, uh, the New Deal of the, the 30s and, 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 and the consensus that it established. And in uh, Europe, uh, it was with the social democratic uh, welfare state in, in places like uh, Britain and, and elsewhere throughout Western Europe. So neoliberalism was a critique of those of, of those things that uh, basically sought a, a much less regulatory type of state, um, although not necessarily a smaller one. That's something that's kind of misleading about the rhetoric of neoliberalism as well. Um, a less regulatory state, um, a less 
uh, less interventionist one, at least in the kind of Keynesian sense that that was the norm uh, before the late 1970s. Um, and and uh, basically a, a type of society where everybody was supposed to think about themselves. Again, this was, I think, a very conscious ideological project, not really uh, captured by a misleading term like laissez-faire, which is often associated with neoliberalism. Um, neoliberalism wanted to make everybody into a uh, property owner, a kind of precarious uh, entrepreneur. When Margaret Thatcher talked about a capital-owning democracy, that's... Uh, that's what she meant. So that was what the project was at its inception. Um, and the complication um, is why there are so many other uh, possible uses for the term, and I think correct uses, is that neoliberalism was so successful um, that a lot of people are now able to channel it and live it and embody it without realizing that that's what they're actually doing. Now, it seems to me when we talk about neoliberals today, and certainly when I use this as an epithet and the way that your argument and your, your Jacobin piece characterizes neoliberal and neoliberalism, uh, it seems to stem from the third way in the early 1990s that was crafted, concocted, and perfected by the likes of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair in the United Kingdom. Uh, it has since morphed, of course, as the ruling class has accumulated more power, more wealth in society than ever, even in that you know 25 to 30 some odd year uh, duration that I just spelled out there. So such that someone like uh, Barack Obama can quite accurately be described as a neoliberal, even though uh, he's someone who champions at least a modest uh, social welfare state and social safety net. I think this is where people like Jonathan Chait, you know, jump in and Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein over at Vox, they'll jump in and and cry foul here. Because how is it the case that a Democrat, a soft social safety net supporter like Barack Obama, could be in any way, shape or form accurately described as a neoliberal? How could Cory Booker, a Democrat, be described as a neoliberal? How could Hillary Clinton, a Democrat who has very soft and sappy words for the poor, uh, for the minorities, and for the disenfranchised in society, how could they be adequately and accurately categorized as a neoliberal? They are certainly not the same as, say, Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan, but this word has morphed in a way that I think the Ezra Klein's of the world are not accounting for. What do you make of this transformation because uh, you know, it seems to really be the thread that holds your argument together. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I, I should have mentioned Bill Clinton and Tony Blair in my last answer. You know, so the the uh, the philosophy of, of neoliberalism was something that was kind of taking shape for for decades, and then uh, you know it had its kind of first incursion into Western politics. Uh, in the Reagan-Thatcher era, but then the people who really consolidated it were liberals. They were people uh, like Tony Blair um, and 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 New Labor uh, or the Atari Democrats, Bill Clinton um, uh, in the United States. Um, they were very conscious kind of zealots for the market, and they sought to establish a new political consensus, and they successfully did. And the thing about a political consensus is that it's not uh, always a, it's not always homogenous. Neoliberalism has a left and a right wing. I mean, the the left wing of neoliberalism that the mainstream of the Democratic Party, I think, largely uh, represents in the United States, 
um, is different from the right wing of neoliberalism. It's more interested in a kind of inclusion. It's more interested in cultural pluralism and um, it's less interested in kind of nationalism and nativism and things like that. Um, and that might make it a distinctive phenomenon, but it doesn't mean that it's not operating within the same broad ideological consensus. And I think there's a strong argument that it is. So when all these guys say that uh, neoliberalism applies to so much that the term is not of any use, I actually think we need to draw the opposite uh, conclusion. If, uh, as I say in the piece, if a phenomenon is uh, seems to be everywhere, if it's so diffuse, uh, that that's actually a case for for. Uh, understanding it and for uh, debating it and for kind of clearly demarcating it, uh, not for kind of uh, retiring the term or uh, pretending that what it's ref- what what it refers to uh, doesn't exist. Um, so I, I think uh, I think the big the, the the thing that's kind of complicating all of this and what a lot of these uh, neoliberalism is a slur or whatever uh, it's meaningless think pieces misunderstand is that uh, uh, neoliberalism was so successful. Uh, that you can now uh, you can now channel it uh, and you can now think uh, in in neoliberal terms without even realizing that you're you're doing it as I as I say in the piece um, I mean it's you know a, an ideology stops being considered one or an ideology rather uh, you know becomes successful when it stops being considered one um, the, you know the kind of weird vernacular that it once used just becomes the lingua franca that everyone uses uh, that's particularly true of, of neoliberal economics so I what I think has happened is all of these uh, all of these liberals that want us to retire the term or think that it's overused um, what's actually happening is that they have so internalized uh, the neoliberal critique of of uh, social democracy and of earlier incarnations of liberalism, they're actually unable to see beyond it. And if that illustrates anything, it's uh, it's the it's the absolute triumph of uh, of neoliberalism. That's right. Ideology is, in many senses, the thing that's closest to us, but it's also uh, rendered completely uh, invisible on that basis. You know, uh, one way to describe ideology in a very simplistic way without any jargon to a lay audience is to, it's it's uh, it's like water to a fish. It's absolutely essential in every way for their existence and their understanding and their operation in the world. And yet uh, they most likely don't even notice that it's there. It's just ever present. Uh, it's an ever present, uh, you know, uh, force in their life. Uh, not to stretch the metaphor too far here, but uh, in closing, the the thing that I liked about your take uh, so much is that it really brings out the fact that this word neoliberal and neoliberalism, despite its occasional abuses, despite the way that sometimes it covers over some really important distinction distinctions, and at times it encourages uh, some just downright lazy thinking, which we should fight, it nonetheless gives us an instrument, a tool to continue pushing the boundaries of the possible and to continue um, radicalizing our demands about what we demand from the political class, from the elites and society, uh, such that we refuse them the opportunity to claim the terrain of being radical, uh, to refuse them the, the terrain of social justice, of economic justice. Uh, in the way that they like to do. It seems to me that these neoliberals become so incensed at being called a neoliberal because 
they fancy themselves as not only being on the right side of history, but as being the instrument that has led to these, you know, allegedly uh, egalitarian uh, outcomes that they that they like to champion in the so-called liberal arc of of progress, arc of justice. Uh, do you think there's some truth to that? That these democratic socialists, that Bernie Sanders incenses these centrists so much because uh, it really gives we we our existence gives lie to their own self conception. I think that's exactly right, and it's particularly true of uh, of the writings of a person like Jonathan Chait, uh, who just seems so persistently uncomfortable that anybody that first of all there could be anyone to his left, but second of all that liberalism, which is his chosen political identity, might not actually be the standard bearer for political progress uh, and social progress in the year ahead, years ahead. Um, there, there is a profound discomfort at, that, that he and, and people like him, I think, feel at that. Um, and so uh, this is one of the reasons why their critiques of Bernie Sanders uh, and their attacks on Bernie Sanders often seem so amorphous. They can never seem to work out whether actually liberals are somehow to Bernie Sanders left. That was something that was kind of they gave a trial run to in 2016 during the Clinton Sanders contest, if you remember that. Um, uh, or, you know, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders is to their left, but the left is actually Stalinist or something like that. They can never work out what the what the critique is. And uh, you can see that there's a lot of discomfort there, I think, very much for the reasons that you said. And just in closing, if you look at some of the distinctions between the policy platforms that are being put out by candidates in the Democratic Party primary race for 2020, uh, it's crystal clear. Bernie Sanders just put out his immigration policy, and it doesn't just focus on 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 the 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 absolute outrages of the concentration camps, the the child separations, the the utter and sheer terror uh, faced by migrant populations, both inside and outside the country. Uh, just the sheer depravity of the Trump administration's handling of this. I mean, that's a that's a that's a consensus that's shared by all of the the candidates, I think, and, and, and genuinely and authentically so. But Bernie Sanders' immigration policy goes much further, and I think this is what distinguishes us from the neoliberal Democrats, which we refuse to see injustice and oppression as just a matter of uh, these these isms. Right. Not uh, these sort of shallow forms of bigotry and hate that aren't somehow rooted in deeper forms of exclusion and, and injustice. And I think that's one thing that democratic socialism gets at very pointedly, that it's not just enough to say that racism is bad. It's that our system and our, uh, our economy uh, is absolutely tilted against people of color in this country. And that is so much worse. And it requires a far more radical uh, approach to to redressing those in those racial and 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 gender and sexual and ethnic and all the rest of the the injustices that are faced by people in this you know in this late neoliberal phase. What do you make of the way in which these neoliberal Democrats try to slough off the real needs of these populations and somehow preserve the kind of faux woke uh, social justice narrative on top of that? I mean, I think that the the social justice narrative that you're talking about that that you know neoliberalism is so is so fond of, and that I think you really saw peaking with something like the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign, it's a sign that you know this is kind of all that liberalism has left because it's out of gas everywhere else. 
Um, you know, in many ways, things like the uh, liberal obsession with celebrity, the kind of emphasis on culture rather than politics is kind of the main site of struggle, um, things like that. Uh, those are an expressions of futility. They're, again, an expression of, of this neoliberal consensus that we're, we're living in, one where everything is so bound up in the logic of, of markets, but also in which uh, the, you know, ostensibly reformist side of politics, the liberal side is so given up on actually trying to do anything. It's given up on the idea that, that you can really uh, make society substantially better, that what you get is a, a politics that is, is in many respects, uh, extraordinarily shallow. Um, and that is not only unwilling to uh, try to deal with root causes of injustice, but is actually unable to acknowledge or even conceive that there could be root causes to these things. And if we're talking about the differences between the socialist analysis and the liberal analysis, I think that's probably, uh, you couldn't see a starker illustration of it than that. Couldn't be illustrated better than what we're seeing in the 2020 primary. Uh, Mayor Pete, Mayo Pete, as some people have uh, called him quite amazingly so, uh, Buddha Judge definitely illustrates these differences. Uh, we're going to talk a lot more about this. We've only just scratched the surface of this distinction that we've raised, this kind of phony, faux, woke social justice narrative trying to be upheld by the liberals uh, versus the more fundamental structural approach to uh, all kinds of injustices and inequalities in our country as wielded by democratic socialists. We're going to talk all about that and much more in the audio podcast version of our chat today. And if you want to access that, check out the video description below and you will find a link to listen to that full podcast. And once again, thanks so much, Luke Savage, for joining us, contributing writer at Current Affairs and Jacobin Magazine and co-host of the excellent Michael and Us podcast. Thanks for coming on DPS. Cheers very much. A pleasure. As always, don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. Like the video, subscribe to the channel, that is, in order to get notified every time we release a new video, which will be happening on a much more frequent basis. And for those of you who are listening to the bitter end of this particular video, let me know in the comments, what do you think about this word neoliberal? Is it overused? Does it have any meaning? What does it mean to you? And maybe when was the last time you used it? That would be an interesting social survey, wouldn't it? see all of the differences uh, that people, the different usages that people make of this word. In any case, we will see you all next time.